Hello, and welcome to Clearer Thinking with Spencer Greenberg, the podcast about ideas that matter. I'm Josh Castle, the producer of the podcast, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. In this episode, Spencer speaks with Anthony Adams about metaphysical geometry, processing fear during psychedelic experiences, and developing positive therapeutic contexts around psychosis. So one thing I'd like to dive into with you today, Anthony, is some of the psychedelic experiences you've had that you feel were profoundly impactful in your life and just kind of hear about them, what they felt like from the inside, and then also some of the ramifications they had for you going forward. One of the topics that I want to talk to you about is metaphysical geometry. I have no idea what that is, to be honest. So tell me a bit about that. What is that? Metaphysical geometry is a concept that I encountered or it was a, I guess it was a term that I coined, not really just for my own integration process from a 5-MeO-DMT ceremony that I sat in a couple of years ago with this Australian shaman in Brooklyn. And the space that it came from was that I went through this process and the best way that I could describe it was that it felt on some very basic level, it was like interacting with the spiritual concepts, it was very hard to differentiate whether it was just like a 3D representation of my most deeply held beliefs or if it was base reality. It was kind of difficult to determine what those were. And it makes sense. It would probably likely be beliefs versus base reality. But it was this 3D representation of what it felt like happens when someone would die. Sort of the in-between space between life and death, actually, is what the 5-MEO experience regularly occasions for folks. And when I came back from that space, there was a lot that I kind of unpacked after that. But one of the pieces that kind of landed was metaphysical geometry. And a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, I I happened to walk into a Catholic church and and I decided to go to a mass. And as I was sitting in the mass, as I was looking at the iconography and like the cross and the the, the sort of the, the architecture and the the big thing behind the priest that's like a, you know, sort of a sculptural kind of thing that most many Catholic churches have. It struck me that that was the same metaphysical geometry that I had seen in that space and that it also mapped to other wisdom traditions that I've studied. In what sense was it the same? Okay. So in this space that I explored on 5MEO was a white light type experience, like a central point that was a white light. On the sides of it were darkness. And at that particular point in my life, I was in a very depressed space. There's parts of me that were still confronting some suicidal ideation and challenges like that. The best way to describe it is I went into those feelings. I kind of got pulled in, almost a seductive energy pulled me into the outskirts of that white light, so to speak. If you would imagine a bullseye, uh, the white light being at the center, sort of the farthest edge from that was, was where I kind of landed at that point. And in that space, I encountered an energy that felt very, I mean, it felt like, oh, this is, the de- this is like the devil or a demonic energy that's in that space. And I confronted it very, I confronted it and I said, hey, I want to live my life. And at that point, I sort of came out and I had this recognition that this white light at the end of life is something that I would want to be able to embrace just to be able to go into it fully. And that the mechanism to do that was orienting my life in such a way that I was, you know, 
waking up every day and just embracing, this sounds cliched in a way, but really embracing the challenges of the day. It's like going into the uncertainty and the mystery of every day in such a way that when that moment of death comes, you're sort of primed yourself over daily practice to be able to surrender into with curiosity into the awe of the moment of death, into that white light. And I sort of also saw kind of in the center point of that, almost as if there was a bunch of mirrors that were bouncing light back and forth. And I recognized that as relationships, sort of this idea of the way, you know, really like it was like the golden rule sort of shown met like geometrically is the best way I could describe that. So how does that map? Well, when I was sitting in the church and I looked up at the iconography, you see the cross, the top, um, which is actually like a, almost like a marksman's cross. There's a circle and there's a marksman's cross. And there's a sense that in that space, there's a consciousness emanating down from the cross. So if like you go in the church, there's a cross, there's a circle, there's like a triangular sort of like filigreed energy coming down from the cross. And then there's a bunch of people, there's Jesus and there's the disciples and saints sort of in that space of consciousness. And when I saw that, what I recognized was that, you know, this idea, the metaphor of the cross is it's the struggle of your life and it's death. And that by orienting one's life towards the miniature deaths we experience every day as we surrender our ego or we work in service of our deeper values, we take on a particular type of consciousness, that there's a certain way of moving throughout the world. So I, I have a hard time commenting on what you said, like at the object level. So I, I make a, a meta level comment. So my meta level comment is what I interpret you doing here is you had this really intense psychedelic experience where your visual system kind of got connected to these concepts. In other words, you weren't just like thinking about these ideas. You were actually seeing these ideas, almost like a synesthesia between vision and thinking, you know, the way that like a synesthete might mix two senses, like maybe every word has a color or maybe the taste of chicken sounds like a bell. You are like mixing the visual processing system in your mind with the kind of like thinking and suddenly this vision was created. So that's what I interpret you as doing. And that this was like a deeply meaningful experience to you, which then you could tie into like all these other things that you think are important life lessons. The thing that I would shift around that is that the visual experience was actually fairly low resolution. Like it wasn't sight in the sense of, it was more perceptual, if I could explain it this way. So when I think of visual, I think of bright lights and colors and kind of seeing this whole thing. There was a sense of light and dark, but that's basically it. It was literally just like a a sort of a lightness and a darkness. It was more three-dimensional, geometric. You're moving around a space. You're feeling kind of the concepts in three dimensions, right? It's almost as if you were feeling the desk in front of you and the chair that you're sitting on and and kind of making your way through a room or an actual space. If it was a hallucination, it was a hallucination of like proprioception or that's not even maybe the correct term, but like- No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If you listen to blind people talk about what their dreams are like, that's what their dreams sound like. If you have someone who became blind as an adult, they might see things in their dreams, perhaps. But if you have someone who's always been blind, they're born blind, they don't see things in their dreams. Usually what they what they have is a perception of like space moving around, touching things, the feeling of where objects are and, and so on. That would be a more accurate description of what that experience of that space was like. What's interesting about this for me is that the metaphor of this bullseye kind of experience, right? Like the idea of sin, which might be things like suicide or... Um, 
hiding or drug use, different things people would use to kind of hide the pain in themselves. It's an archery term. Like sin means to miss the mark, which I don't know if people typically understand that, that like it's a term of missing the mark. And when I was in that kind of geometric space, it literally was like, oh, this is just like, you've missed the mark. Like you've just pointed your sort of consciousness. You've oriented yourself towards the wrong thing. And that by orienting towards the challenge and the struggle and death, so to speak, that there's a consciousness that emerges from that. So in, in that moment, it was like, the feeling was, oh, this is just how things are. This is like the primary experience. And these wisdom traditions, like, you know, this isn't unique to Christianity, by the way. I mean, I think, you know, Augustine talked about Christ going to the cross, like a bridegroom to his bride, right? This idea that we, you know, you surrender passionately and willingly, not only to death, but also to the struggle of your life. But this is, again, this is not unique to the Christian ideal. I think you see this in, you know, sort of like the obstacle is the way you see it in stoicism, you see it in mythologies, you see it in Native American tradition. Like it's a the theme of basically, you know, doing the work. I mean, in a certain sense, it's like, here's the path and take a step, right? I mean, it's, a, and some of you can condense it this very simple way, but the experience in that moment brought it to life in such a beautiful way. It was almost holographic in a way for the experience of life is the way that I would, I would describe that experience. What do you think we get out of surrendering to death? Not trying to die, but just surrendering to the idea of death. I mean, and you've known me for a while and, you know, you've talked to me when I've, you know, we've hung out when I've been in spaces where I was flirting with death in the sense of like suicidal ideation, or I was, you know, kind of in that space. And one of the things that I've realized, you know, that I do, I, you know, I do this high performance coaching for people, right? And one of the things with athletes that I've noticed is this is a fairly common thing. I'm sure you may have heard of it, but this is the idea that athletes code fear and excitement kind of differently in their bodies where like a championship athlete often will have the same physiological response to like going into a championship match as a person who hasn't really become a champion. They'll both describe my face is flushed, my hands are kind of clammy or my heart's beating, but the champion describes it as excitement and the sort of second tier athlete will describe that same physiological response as fear, right? So it's the same feeling it's just a different labeling and a different way of then taking action based on those experiences. That's important. And, this, and I'll get to this, but orienting towards death. When I was in that suicidal space, one of the things that really became clear for me was what I was kind of, I would say, mislabeling as suicide. That impulse, I would argue, and this is something we could get into, is in the same way that a champion would code fear as excitement. I recognized that I was miscategorizing this experience that I was having, that I needed to like kill my physical body. And I never acted on that, but I recognized that was actually a signal from inside that I needed to go through a, an, an internal death and rebirth process, an ego death, as I would say, a ego regeneration process or updating your default mode network to be able to function in a context that maps more accurately with reality. So that orientation towards death, there's a couple of things. One is the death in life every day. There's finding yourself in a new context. There's some challenge. And for someone that is like myself and many of the folks that I work with who are highly intelligent, sensitive, creative, oftentimes things can literally feel like they're going to kill us. You know, I remember like making the love game and literally feeling like if I put this out in the world, it's going to kill me. Not figuratively, like I will die if I put this in the world. 
having to push through that. Other existential challenges, the feelings of like, oh, if I feel this grief or if I feel the sadness or if I feel this rejection, it will literally kill me. And so I'm avoiding it because my nervous system saying, nope, don't feel that you're going to die. I think that's grounded in family system and lineage stuff, which we could talk about. But the orientation towards death is then if I am unafraid or if I am surrendering to the process of death, it's much easier on a day-to-day basis to surrender into those feelings of, okay, I think this feeling is going to kill me and I can fully feel it and I can die into the next version of myself. It's like a lobster molting his shell, right? To kind of put on a new identity for the task at hand or for the responsibility so that the person has found themselves. Hmm. With regard to how people respond to fear, like for example, professional athletes, recently I posted on social media asking people why they enjoy horror films. Because this has always kind of confused me because I've always found them like just very unpleasant to watch. You know, people have a wide range of different reasons. I remember this post. It was great. Yeah, people offered a wide range of different reasons. Like some people said they really liked this sense of release when you kind of like the story gets resolved. Some people said they like get bored easily and horror films like hold their attention more. Some people said they really like the high stakes in horror films because like literally life is on the line. But one of the most interesting response that I heard was that some people just enjoy feeling afraid. And then I ran a a poll after that because I was just curious about this. So in this poll I ran, I said, when you feel intense fear, do you sometimes enjoy the feeling of it in your body or mind? And uh, 0% of people said it's always enjoyable. So that's just not a thing people have. But 6% said it's usually enjoyable when they feel intense fear, which I thought was, was quite interesting. And then 28% say it's occasionally enjoyable. You know, about one third of people at least sometimes find intense fear enjoyable. I think that's just so interesting. This feeling that like most people would describe as just kind of like a purely bad feeling, like it just it's a form of suffering almost. Other people are like, no, 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 actually, sometimes it feels really good. And then there's also just the fact that people experience different levels of it. So one person, you know, going into a tough negotiation might feel just extremely afraid and another person might just feel slightly afraid. So, so you know, I think all of these things can modulate how we deal with fear. The relationship to fear feels like it's so deep. There's such richness there. I've always been really averse to horror films. My brother loves them. I think I commented on that in your post. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I do think that we can, if we find it useful, I mean, I don't think you want to recode necessarily fear. I mean, I've heard some stories of people that really have performed in like really incredible ways or in like that this orient themselves towards it. Daniel Schmachtenberger tells a story about his father who like as a kid, there's a liquor store and there was gunshots in the parking lot. And his father instinctively just started sprinting towards the liquor store. And when he got into the liquor store, he found that I think there was a person that tried to rob the place. The shop owner had actually like defended himself. And like, it was like the shop owner was okay. I think the person, I don't actually know the full details of it, but the shop owner was okay. I think maybe the person that was trying to rob the store might've been shot, but his father's default setting was I can run into this liquor store and I know that my momentum will carry me far enough that I can take a few bullets and get the gun out of the hand of the guy shooting the store owner. Like that was just his default setting. And like, you know, Daniel grew up in that environment. So I do think some people are kind of wired on some level to just orient towards fear. I suppose my question is, are there opportunities to, well, we do this in some sense. We have exposure therapy. We find new things. There's, there's, there's experiences that we can have that make certain contexts less frightening which to some degree, I think, is what psychosis can be for people if it goes well. Well, to what you're saying about fear, I feel like one of the most valuable heuristics I've had in my whole life is this idea that I should never let fear stop me from doing something I find valuable. Of course, I don't live by this perfectly, 
But for a very long time, I've just tried to make that my attitude. If something's worth doing, fear should never be a reason to not do it and pushing myself to do those things. And <laughs> so it almost becomes like, if I'm afraid of this thing and I know it's actually valuable, like that's a, the fear is an additional reason to do it, right? It's, it's not only not a reason not to do it. It's like, no, no, no. Now I have to do it because I'm afraid. Right. I think that there's something to that. I mean, you remember my birthday party, right? When I was 10 years ago and I was 31. Yeah, I do, I do. Yeah. You remember the the sign that you synchronistically picked out of the pile of things to that got assigned to you? What was it? Remind me. It was fear is the gatekeeper of opportunity. Perfect. It's a perfect, uh, perfect one for me to pick. 10 years ago. Crazy. And I have always remembered, I've always remembered that. I mean, that was a, that was an amazing birthday party. But I think that you're right. I think that there is a the work that I do, we talked about, I mentioned alchemy. You, know, you said, what is alchemy? I love that I sent you three things to talk about and they're all like made up words or things that like... <laughs> yeah, I, you sent me these three things to talk about. I was like, uh, what are what are these things? <laughs> I've never heard of any metaphysical, of them. I'm like, let's talk about metaphysical geometry, synchro destiny, and alchemy. And alchemy at least is a word that you'd heard of. You'd heard I was before. like, okay, so we're going to talk about transmuting lead into gold. Is that the topic? Well, metaphorically, you know, the idea that there's a whole school of thought that these alchemists were... I mean, I think on one level, they were studying things in the physical world. They were trying to kind of complete the task of turning you know, base metals into higher forms of metal. I guess they're doing that now, aren't they? I mean, they are sort of like quantum labs or something, like your plasma laser. But it is, it is physically possible to change atoms into other atoms, right? We now, we now know that, yeah. They were onto something. It was just you know, maybe a bit too soon, but they, you know, they certainly, they weren't wrong to pursue that goal. But there's a way that there was also this deeply embedded spiritual practice that other folks approach that it wasn't just about turning the lead into gold, that that was a, a representation in the external world for what they were up to. And that was true that you know, they were working on that task, which of course, it's wild that now we're doing that. But there was also this spiritual process. It was taking the, the feelings, taking the lead inside of us, the sadness, the grief, the anger, the rage, putting that into a crucible, individually containing those, right? Not stuffing it down, not projecting it onto our community or a partner, but really holding a container and then to actually add fire to it. In my case, we work with breath to amplify that. And from that process, from that alchemical process of taking these, you know, called the base metals, the lead, the, the heaviness of life and transmuting that, turning that into, they would talk about the philosopher's stone, which was like the source of inspiration and sort of this magical kind of oracle. You could also refer to that as the, I mean, in a way, I think the philosopher's stone probably tracks pretty closely to sort of a Christ-like experience, right? Sort of the, the deep kind of intuition, or as we would say now, probably in like, you know, Jungian psychology, like you've reclaimed your authentic self. I, mean, I think all of these are kind of riffs on the same theme, but that alchemical process returns someone back to their core essence, that it reconnects them to their authenticity, to their authentic expression. And that that really is the work of alchemy. And so, yes, in a way, you know, you're an alchemist. You, you, you've recognized that there's a way to transmute fear as something to avoid actually into an artifact, something that is, you know, some tangible reality, that there's a, there, there's a reality on the other side of that, that when you transmute yourself, when you move through that threshold, there's a whole other world on the other side of it. And so that, in a nutshell, that's the alchemy process. That's like the work that I've synthesized around myself, the way that, that made sense for me to work with these more challenging emotional states or states of consciousness. And then that's, you know, part of the work that I do professionally. I have experienced some things within my own imagination in waking consciousness that have been the most terrifying, you know, like terror, 10 out of 10, just, you know, waking sober consciousness. 
in the moment, I think I didn't know that I liked it, but then I heard the wisdom of mentors that were telling me to surrender into it. When I did, it was a whole other world on the other side of it. So what, what is it like concretely to surrender into it? How do you think about that? When I had the five MEO DMT experience, it was very similar to that. There was a huge amount of resistance that I had to the fear of death when I initially went into it. And I basically went psychotic and went to hell and like had this horrible, horrific experience the first time that I smoked the 5-MeO-DMT. That's remarkable that you did it again after that. Yeah, no, it's so funny because in the moment, it like it's 20 minutes and you've lost your sense of time. So it's literally just you with your deepest fears for eternity. You know, if you could remove the time variable from your consciousness and then just be like, oh, the things I'm most afraid of, here they are. But in like normal clock time, 20 minutes, you're, you're out of it. That's, that's insane. Yeah, you're in and out. Oh, God. I mean, it really is such a fascinating experience. And when I was in there the first time, I'm like, guess the reason people do this is so they never do it again. Like, it's just kind of like, is that the purpose of this? And then I came back from it. I mean, it was literally terrifying. It was all of my deepest fears. I'm going to go crazy. You know, I'm never going to come back from this experience. I'm going to hell. I'm, you know, and it was like all of that programming and fear was amplified. The difference I've had with MDMA psychedelic therapy work versus say 5-MeO-DMT, MDMA is the equivalent of you wake up and you're afraid of a monster in your corner and your very sweet grandmother comes in and like gently turns the light on and shows you it's a coat rack, right? That's like MDMA. 5-MeO-DMT is you're in bed, the coat rack destroys your house, destroys your entire family. You have to kill the coat rack and you realize that death and all of the material doesn't matter. And that's how you conquer it. <laughs> like two completely <laughs> wow. different paths to get this to kind of the same place, right? So there I am in the craziness. And in my head, I'm like, I guess you would just never do this again. That's the whole point of it. And then I came out of it and I'm back in space time. And I was like, okay, we definitely need to do this uh, at least one more time tonight. And then that second time is when I had this, the more metaphysical kind of experience of confronting suicidal ideation, which by the way, has not returned in, you know, in two years, not even a wisp of it. I've been more creatively generative. I was able to navigate some difficult stuff like through the breakup. In that session, I saw the perfection of the whole thing. It was like, this is, everything is perfect exactly as it is. And I came out with just such deep gratitude. So in that place, the surrender for me was really like, there was a shaman. I was terrified. He was like, look, I was just going to go observe this because I was invited as an underground practitioner to go like, just to kind of watch and observe. So I'd be familiar with the medicine. And when I got there, the, the shaman, I didn't prepare for it. And the shaman just said to me, if you're here and you have the opportunity, you really ought to give it a shot. You know, And I was like kind of terrified, but I was like, I just trusted it. You know, I trusted and surrendered into that moment. So in that moment, it was a surrender into that experience. Cut to like a year later, about a year ago, actually, we're in under quarantine. I lead a men's group. And so we meet, we met every week for like over a year. It's six guys and we kind of work on different themes and gestalt based practice, kind of decentralized led we were working on a theme of altered states of consciousness. And so part of it was talking about men's relationship to alcohol or sex or, you know, different types of drugs or success or different things people use to kind of alter their consciousness. And part of it was I led all of us collectively through a remote breathwork experience. And Spencer, I'm telling you, this experience was more terrifying than any drugs I'd ever taken, anything in my life that I had done to that point. And here's why. But you were just breathing. We were just, yeah. So breathwork is faster and deeper breathing. It was developed by Stan Groff as an alternate to LSD psychotherapy after prohibition in the sixties. Groff was a a psychotherapist, psychiatric doctor at university of Maryland, I believe. And so after prohibition, he was having such good results with LSD, like healing 
something like 50 or 60% of the alcoholics that came through. He needed an alternative because, you know, the war on drugs sort of took away that tool. He developed holotropic breathwork as a mechanism for entering into an altered state of consciousness to get better access to your unprocessed subconscious material. So we started doing that breath work. It's remote, first of all. There's no sitter. So normally you'd have a person guiding you in it. I was guiding, but I was also going in with the men. So as we're going in, I'm doing the breath, I'm doing the breath. All of a sudden I start to hear just full on hallucination of screams, like literally the screaming of souls in hell is the best way that I can describe it. And I felt like I was literally going to hell and I'm breathing and I'm telling myself, it's like, you don't have the luxury of even reminding yourself that you've taken a drug. I have fully lost it this time for sure. Like I have like, I've triggered something. I'm going to, cause I, as a person with my background, I've always had this fear that I'm going to be in some psychosis for the rest of my life. Cause with the, with a drug, you say, okay, well, eventually this will wear off. Uh... Hopefully with a drug, you take a drug. You're like, well, okay, I took LSD. And so in 12 hours and you know, I've taken, you can remind yourself you've taken something. Now, some part of me maybe was able to say, okay, you've, t- you've been doing breathing. But in that moment, I didn't have that conscious awareness. All I heard were Stan Groff's words in my mind, which were, if you find yourself going to hell, go, don't resist it, surrender into that experience. And so I surrendered and it took me into this deeper state of consciousness. It was dark. There was this, like the best way I could describe it was like a very spiky, like demon kind of sitting in the corner. And I was like, okay, well, here we are. And here is the devil or some demon that's here to kill me. And I'm staring at the demon. And it reminds me of my first holotropic experience from 10 years ago, where I went to this beautiful motif of sort of Native Americans and, and, and being eaten alive by wolves and, and, and being eaten was actually a beautiful process. It felt like being eaten alive by wolves in this vision experience felt like me biting into a strawberry. It was so delicious, like being devoured by these wolves. But in this particular motif, I'm there and there's this demon in the corner and I'm staring at him. And so I realize, oh, he's actually, he's here to kill me, but that's okay. And so I surrender to it. I kind of, you know, put my arms back figuratively and this demonic energy, so to speak, this very spiky kind of being jumps onto my chest, begins to eat me. And what I realized, Spencer, is that it's eating away my anxiety. This anxiety that I've been carrying probably since the last time that I smoked the five, five DMT and like some unresolved stuff. So it eats up this anxiety, kills me, so to speak. And then I find myself literally just like flying through the universe in this gorgeous experience. And we come out of that. And then, you know, the men are, you know, connect with the men. And it's a really, you know, very powerful experience for us. So for me, that was surrendering into the fear in that space. I think that a practical example of this would be, I've had a huge paranoia about being arrested and going to prison since my, like for my entire life. As someone who used psychedelics at a young age, as someone who's a psychedelic advocate, and just like general paranoia for the kind of stuff that I was up to and doing that was not with not intention to harm people, but I could see how it could be perceived as a threat. I kind of always just experienced that from a very young age that I, you know, as an adult, I would carry fear of, you know, going to jail for your work or whatever. And so, because, you know, I'd worked with people with psychedelics and, and helping support them through those experiences. And so I was given an opportunity this year to do, PBS came to us and they said, hey, we're looking for a person to come kind of sit, you know, and be with someone while they're under MDMA. And whew, I thought, man, this is not, this is not underground. This is like the exact opposite of underground. And I had like, you know, had paranoid visions of, of this in the past. And so I sat with it and I thought, you know, on some level, it's really like the next iteration of this work. And I presented it to a friend who 
had had some really severe sexual trauma when she was younger. It was like this religious environment where then she went home, her church like blamed her and her parents blamed her and didn't believe it was this horrible experience. And she had really found healing through in part with MDMA, helped her kind of reconnect to herself, return to her spirituality, return to her community in a bigger way. And she's a lawyer. And she was like, you know, this is important work. And I would like to be the person that does this. And I want you to be there with me. And I talked with her and I was like, man, she is so courageous. And she's had such a good experience with this. Like, I have to put my own personal fear aside. Like, this is what you're here to do. Like, this is on some level activist work. It's being an advocate. And so I agreed to it. I said, let's do it. And we did it. And they came and they, they shot and we did this whole experience. I was terrified about it for a while, but I really made peace with it. And I really felt like this was a space to be able to step in, to be authentic, to show a side of myself that I had been kind of afraid to show and to really speak out and say, look, these are substances that can be healing and that can be helpful. And yes, we have things in phase three clinical trials, but there are millions of people that don't have access to them and they're going in this underground way. And I would like to be able to show people what that looks like and also what it looks like when it's done well with support. So anyway, I, I surrendered into it. They shot a documentary, it comes out in a couple months, you know, and I'm retired from that work, but there was a part of me that, you know, kind of came back to go be in, a, be in the space, you know, with this person that felt confrontational and it felt like I was really bumping up against the edge of the current system. And we shall see, you know, we shall see what happens with that. I don't, you know, I've tried to run the numbers. I don't really think that I'm at any real strong legislative risk for anything, especially with things changing. But it was something that felt risky and I was afraid of it and I stepped into it. And I do feel like that I'm better for having done that. Do you want to form a positive new habit? Are you interested in improving your diet, learning a skill or getting fit with daily exercise? Then you should check out the free clearer thinking program called Daily Ritual, a Habit Creation System. Powered by over two years of research, the Daily Ritual program teaches simple techniques that can help you form a new, beneficial daily habit. If you're motivated to make a positive change to your daily routine, these techniques may be just the thing you need to lock in your new activity. Are you ready to reshape your day? To use the free Daily Ritual tool or to find Clearer Thinking's other free tools and many courses, head to clearerthinking.org. So I know you recently listened to the episode I recorded with Ayla, where we also talk about psychedelic experiences, and, and I know you had some reactions to that, so I wanted to hear, hear what were your thoughts on that episode. I couldn't get through the entire episode, not for lack of interest, but because I had to stop and like record all of my notes within the first 10 minutes of getting through it, of all the stuff that I wanted to talk about, <laughs> and I realized I needed much more time. She talked about have it was like around this like enlightenment project i think that she did which sounded fascinating where she did a bunch of a series of interviews with people that were enlightened or claimed to be enlightened and she was trying to kind of understand like what their experience was in that process and then she talked about her own experience where she said that she i think it was perhaps occasioned by meditation or i don't exactly know the particular initiation point for her but she went into a state of consciousness that she described i believe as deeply pleasurable deeply painful and something where I think it impacted her short-term memory. She took a couple days, I think, to be able to process this. It might be something that she was dealing with for a period of time, kind of going in and out of these states. And that she said that when it, and not her words, when, when it resolved, I don't know exactly, when she got through it, there was a, a window, a period of time where she felt like she was actually more calm. Her anxiety had resolved, that there was this space of clarity that she had attained. I think she said that now she recognized that sort of as a skill, 
like that there was a particular skill of working with that. And she said that it wasn't, I think you had asked her, do you feel like it's from taking psychedelics? And I think that what I recall her response was, was something to the effect of, I don't feel like I would have been able to kind of get through to that type of consciousness or to that state without the psychedelics, but it is a space that I've been able to kind of return to without them. And it's something that, right, wasn't, she didn't necessarily link to being caused by the psychedelics, but that they sort of allowed her to be able to experience that is, is the basic gist of what I got from that. Mm-hmm. So that episode you're talking about is episode 17, if people want to listen to the first 10 minutes of it. I mean, listen to the whole thing. I'm going to go back and listen to the whole thing. I just was, I was so excited about, there's so many pieces here that I wanted to, it was just such good um, grist for the mill. You know, there was such, such a richness there. So there's a whole bunch of pieces from the interview, but the big part that came out for me that I'd love, the, the idea that I feel like is important is this recognition as what Western psychiatry or Western psychology is calling psychosis. This may be, I imagine this be controversial in some circles, but this is this idea that what we're calling psychosis in the West, it's a naturally occurring process. I mean, we can observe that because people are naturally entering into psychosis, but it is a biological mechanism that our brains use to attempt to regenerate a more updated default mode network. In the same way that I've used this metaphor before, like a lobster throughout its life will molt, right? They're the hard shell, protective structure, and at a certain point in a lobster's, I believe many points in a lobster's life, when its shell has become too small, it needs to go crawl under a rock. I have to really dig into the biology of this because I use this metaphor often. I want to make certain that I'm using the correct animal here. But Dale Schutte, uh, if Dr. Dale Schutte is listening, my uh, college honors oceanography professor who's made his life's work studying lobsters, he'd be disappointed in me if I got this wrong. <laughs> so part of the lobster, right? My understanding of the lobster life cycle I'm a little paranoid because I was just at a, a men's workshop where I sort of got into a confrontation with the host over using the metaphor of ostriches hiding their heads in the sand. And, and this whole thing where I was like, they don't really do that. They're just adjusting their eggs. Like nature wouldn't evolve a creature that just puts its head in the sand when it's under threat or just die. So I, I'm, I'm very carefully like phrasing this as my current understanding of the lobster is that when it's time for a lobster to molt, it goes under a rock. It finds a safe place. Let's go of its shell it's in a period of vulnerability, and then it regenerates a shell that then becomes more rigid. And then it can go out in the world. It's got more room. It's a bit more flexible. It can better navigate the world. And it's transitioned into a, you know, it's transformed. It's alchemized itself into a, a, a new version of itself. So what I'm suggesting, and by the way, this is not my original work. Um, there, there's, you know, transpersonal psychology would, would talk about this. I, th- this really was laid out beautifully for me with, when I was going through my own process of trying to make sense of schizoaffective disorder diagnoses, bipolar disorder diagnoses, being in psychosis space, and really trying to under, get my footing in that, in that world. There's a beautifully written sort of like textbook style book called Rethinking Madness by Dr. Paris Williams. The guy's, I believe he's out of Australia. He might live in the Bay now. Gives the book away for free. You can get the really thick PDF, very clinical kind of explanation of these things. Beautiful diagrams of how this stuff works. But that orientation helped me through my own process of integrating psychosis. And what it is in this kind of perspective is that if I find myself too far outside my comfort zone, Paris calls it the window of tolerance. There's a context, basically. The way I understand it is you, you find yourself in a context that is really outside your predictive capacity. And it's like a threat. Your brain's like, I don't really know what to do in this environment. And it's really not something I kind of found myself here in a particular way. 
we'll do different things to try to, we'll try to move back into our window of tolerance. I'm going to come back home. You know, I'm going to go back to what's familiar. We might try to change our environment. You know, we're going to rearrange things to make it more comfortable. Maybe we try to change our perspective a bit or think about it in a different way. Sometimes those things, those things work, but there often will come a time where that won't work. Like we can no longer sort of hold back our experience. Like we can no longer hold back reality, so to speak. And the way Paris describes it is it's sort of the final mechanism that the human has to reconfigure their default mode network to something else that might work better in this current context. And these experiences are fairly predictable for people. What happens is that they enter into a more open state. They experience often more unitive feelings, which match map very closely to like psychedelic experience where the difference between me and you and the environment is no longer as clear through that process. If it completes, if what's called it's, it's completed, almost like the shell, you know, the lobster goes under the rock and the, and is supported and safe. And then this thing regrows people traditionally come out of those experiences, much like Ayla, they come through those experiences with more clarity, more confidence, more connection to their purpose. They've resolved some internal struggle. They've reached a resolution point by coming through that experience. When it doesn't complete, and I would say that in the West, we have such a mono-conscious culture, meaning that we kind of value one lane of waking consciousness, kind of consumer capitalist productive consciousness is generally what we're optimizing for. In the main, I mean, it's now, now we're starting to kind of move towards other types of consciousness, but generally speaking, it's an external consciousness, things from outside of us, and we kind of don't value challenging emotions, kind of the whole thing. So we don't value these altered states of consciousness, or at least we haven't traditionally. And so what that creates is when someone is going through a quote unquote psychotic experience, it's almost as if a lobster walks into an ER with its shell off. And it, what it really needs is a safe space and maybe some help to be able to process through that, what often happens is, well, we just scramble it. We stop it. We arrest it. And so then what we have is a lobster that goes into a hospital and we like wrap it up in bandages and we try to protect it from the outside world. And we don't give it the proper support to regenerate and reform its shell. And what does that look like traditionally? Well, we shoot people up with benzos. We put them on a variety of different pharmacological interventions that really are just managing symptoms versus getting to the root cause, which I would posit, I'll go out on a limb and say in many, many cases, far beyond what is being acknowledged in the West and Western psychiatric model is this need to reconfigure the default mode network. But in more traditional culture, and, and by the way, when does this happen? If you, it, it, psychosis is a pretty predictable feature. It typically maps around points of identity change. So leaving home and going to college, getting a new job, falling in love, becoming a father, anything that in more traditional cultures, we would have had a rite of passage that involved altered states far beyond alcohol, where a person goes into a context where they are supported by community. There is a ritual experience for them to confront the parts of themselves that are most frightening. They gain resolution they gain a sense of confidence and accomplishment, and they come through that with a new identity, more identified with the deeper values inside themselves and slightly less identified with culture. The idea being here that as we develop, we begin to identify less with culture and more as guardians or custodians of culture. So 
in a way, that's what I see. And I think that the way that we tend to suppress it in the West, the metaphor of it working with you know, a woman uh, menstruating, having her period, it's very similar in the sense that it's shamed, in the sense that we often provide medication to help manage it, in the sense that it's not deeply understood, and that there are cultures where it's more celebrated. It's celebrated as, in many ways, the woman being more sensitive to her environment. There's rich information there. There's feedback. There's an opportunity to kind of commune and have a spiritual experience with it. And so that's the experience that I tracked in myself and was sort of one of the core practices that I was able to move through. And this was, again, this was from, from Williams's book. But the general piece here is that psychosis is, is it's being called, I would say it's sort of an ego regeneration process or better yet, like a default mode network regeneration that happens. And within that one last piece, we typically confront unprocessed trauma. And so trauma being information that we've stored in our body, in our synapses, in our brain, and which is really just an undifferentiated fear response. It's like a, a low resolution experience that needs to be given space to fully process when the organism feels safe enough to process it. And when it does that, it's able to kind of gain a higher fidelity of what specifically about that was actually threatening and what pieces can I let go. And in that case, comes back into the world, of course, more relaxed because I'm no longer afraid of every person in a red t-shirt because when I was four, I got abused by someone in a red t-shirt, I realized that, oh, there was an abuse that took place and that impacted me and I can make peace with that. And I'm no longer terrified of red t-shirts. So that's a really interesting perspective. I don't think it maps that well onto my perspective of psychosis, but I'm curious. Let me describe my perspective and then I want your reaction to it. So first thing I would say is I think that there is this personality trait, which I refer to as apophenia. There's a word in English, apophenia. I'm using it maybe slightly differently than it is defined in the dictionary, but but I mean it to mean the tendency to notice patterns in things. And those patterns could be correct. Like you might identify a pattern that other people don't see that's really there, or it might be incorrect, a false positive where you think there's a pattern and there really is none. And we can see this tendency for apophenia in kind of all different kinds of animals. For example, the famous experiments of giving pigeons rewards, a, a sort of a randomized schedule. Sometimes the pigeons would like learn false rules. Like if the pigeon happened to be spinning to the left, when it got the food reward, it might like actually just start spinning to the left a lot, thinking that that's why I got the food reward. And so, you know, so the kind of the pattern matcher can, can go faulty. We can see things that aren't there. So I think that on the apophenia spectrum, I am on the somewhat lower side, maybe like a little below average. And I think you're way out, way high up there in the apophenia spectrum. And, and I think I view this as really just a trade-off. Like, I think I miss things that you see, right? But I also think that you see things that are like false positives, right? And it's about seeing patterns, but it's also about drawing connections. And so one thing I think high apophenia people like yourself do is they draw lots and lots of connections between other things. And then uh, people like myself or, or even lower on apophenia than myself will be like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> How are those things related, right? But you see, you see connections between lots of different things. So that's kind of the first piece. I'd love to hear your reaction to that. Oh, 100%. And I think for me, I guess it's like creativity and pattern recognition plus fear can be kind of a challenge. I don't see it as separate from psychosis. I mean, I can give you a classic example. I was like, I came out of this men's workshop like two weeks ago, and it was a very high intensity, almost like ripping the lobster shell off. I'm going to go with this metaphor in honor of Dale Schutte sort of a ripping of the lobster shell off experience, immersing in a new culture. It's a lot of men, you know, you're like fighting your way through. It's almost like a fight club sort of vibe. You know, people are really pushing you to be in truth and hundred percent commitment, really kind of intense 
experience, no sleep, you know, kind of thing, peak experience. And I know for me that if I haven't had a lot of sleep and I've been in an intense kind of high dopamine, high serotonin, sort of like social space, that if I don't regulate my sleeping and my amygdala, I can get to a space where my pattern recognition is trying to understand externally why I'm afraid. It's like my amygdala is saying, do you need to sleep? That's like the, the base message is like, you actually just need to go to bed right now. But if I don't have that in my conscious mind, I can start looking for patterns to explain why I'm feeling this low level fear anxiety. And when I came back from that experience, there was a day where I was like, I could feel that pattern recognition coming up. And I was like, oh, there's some odd things happening in this therapy session. I'm like, is this therapist that I'm talking to like undercover, always sort of a repeating theme. Are there undercover people around me, like trying to bust me? You know, now the context is like, I have this big documentary coming out. The government does do these things. So it's not like it's pulling it from nowhere, right? It's like, if there's useful material in that space. And we do find that actually people in psychosis, that if you look at the patterns they're recognizing around them, they're generally grounded in some kind of reality, but you need to almost like divide by 10. This is what one of my mentors taught me years ago that was so helpful in my own experience. So I've learned that if I, if I do find myself in those states of consciousness, I'm kind of like the meter of what is the probability that I'm currently being, you know, that Spencer is currently trying to like get me to admit something in his podcast so I can be, you know, locked away for being a psychedelic advocate or activist. You know, right now it's at zero. But if I found that it was at like 1%, that's kind of like, even like a little bit interesting, right? Because like, I would never think that about, I normally would never think that about you, a lifelong friend, trust you very deeply. But if I find that that did come up 1%, 2%, 3%, 10%, is it like 50-50? I've learned over time that I need to ask myself a question. And this was something that um, the psych psychotherapist that I'm friends with in, in California taught me is like, just divide by 10, which for me is like, okay, what is the actual feeling in my body? What's the somatic experience? Okay, I'm afraid. And then let's start with Maslow. Have you eaten? Have you slept? Have you had water? And then when I remind myself, oh yes, your context that you're in is that you're at a conference, you're up, there's all kinds of excitement stuff, whatever. You're also in like a weird space where yeah, this therapist is actually kind of out of integrity in a lot of ways. You don't really trust this person. Oh yeah, there's some stuff happening with your romantic partner that's a little bit challenging. Okay, they're not, they're probably not out to like arrest you or like plotting against you, but you need to make sure you go get some sleep. And then when I drop into that sleep space and I can integrate the memories and I can like kind of replenish my neurotransmitters, I come out of that sort of laughing, like, oh, that's kind of funny. That's that part of apophenia, you know, that you're talking about. It's like, it's misfiring in some way. But when I look at it, there was also useful information there. There was a lack of trust. There's different pieces. I can like unpack it and say, what was really happening internally, this lack of sleep. And that was useful. And then it brought up some patterns to the surface that then I can work with later and say, well, what was really happening with that? And I can just play with it as like a personal insight tool. And then I'm back to a space of being regulated in my nervous system. So how does this for you, how does this track to psychosis? Are you saying you see psychosis as sort of pattern recognition gone awry? Let me make a metaphor to depression because I think it's easier for people to relate to depression since most people have been depressed at some point at least, at least or at least, you know, had had feelings of depression at some point. So with depression... I view that as a sense of hopelessness, usually. I think that's usually what it's about. It's a sense that value has been permanently lost, or you're permanently, you're using yourself are permanently of low value, or the future doesn't hold value, something like that. And I, everyone sometimes experiences the sense that like, oh, something of value has really been lost, like maybe a loved one died, or you failed at some big project that you really had your heart set on, or whatever. Where it becomes depression is when you kind of get stuck in it, when it becomes 
a sort of feedback loop where it's like, oh, you, you feel bad about this like value being lost. But then instead of the normal recovery process where it kind of like over time, you kind of get used to that and you find other sources of value. It's like, you know, you just get stuck on that loss of value and you feel like the world has nothing for you. And similarly, I guess my current mental model of psychosis is people who are high in apophenia, I suspect, are much more prone to psychosis. And it's sort of like the way that after something bad happens, most people will feel like somewhat depressed, but then they kind of come out of it. Psychosis can be sort of like going off the edge of apophenia temporarily, where you kind of get pushed too far in that direction. And it can happen, I think, from a, a wide variety of different causes. Maybe it's, you know, biological stuff, you know, maybe it can be triggered by lack of sleep, it could be triggered by a huge dose of psychedelics, maybe it could be triggered by a really horrible life event or whatever, or maybe it's just, it could be neurological, like maybe someone has brain damage or whatever. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons that can happen. It's kind of spinning off that edge of, of apophenia. So curious to hear your thoughts. It's interesting. I don't think that we're, I'm disagreeing with you. I would say that, so when I'm classifying uh, psychosis, we could look at this and there could be some intermittent step between the ego regeneration process and then psychosis as it's talked about in the West, like psychosis being this thing where you end up in an ER and you're lost and you don't know what's going on and you're freaking out, right? But I'm interested in helping those people because I have been that person. When I was 25, I went through a process of like going down like a quantum physics rabbit hole, like not sleeping for a week, ended up in an ER, kind of convinced that my girlfriend was an alien, maybe a vampire, seeing Jesus, you know, time travelers, et cetera, and like terrified in that space. They gave me a sleeping pill. I went home and it was like the curtain closed on this deeper spiritual vision I was having. And I kind of came out of the metaphoric world back into the literal world, so to speak. But that I would say was a kid. I had no understanding of how to even work with that state of consciousness. I didn't know what to do in that place. And no one in my community knew what to do with that place. Right. It's like no one around knew what to really do about it. The best option was, okay, you end up in an ER because everyone around you is freaking out and they're going to give you a benzo, which is going to help you relax in a way, but you're not going to get completion on the material that's there. And the reason I know that, Spencer, is that in subsequent altered states of consciousness, I've had to confront the same subconscious material that came to the surface in that place when I was 25. I guess what I'm saying is that all of these states of consciousness have value. Like that's the thing that I'm really, that's the, I guess that's something that I'm really driving for here is that in the same way, all people have value, all experiences are valuable. That all the data is valuable here. That really is, I think, the biggest piece. And so for me, this, this apophenia, yes, it can go into a space of people being paranoid about all sorts of things. I would say what that is, is there's a disconnection between understanding their internal world. For me, I was so terrified as a kid to feel or express difficult emotions that I escaped into my creativity, my intelligence. And the way that that manifested as an adult was that I literally like left the physical world to enter into this metaphoric visionary space for like a decade. And Western psychiatrists, you weren't coming back from that. They were like, you need to be on medication your entire life. That was what was supposed to happen there. And I had an intuition in my heart that there was an alternate way through that. I think you introduced me to Michael Vassar, thank God, because I was helping him with a medical startup in, in the Valley and uh, medical research startup, MetaMed. And they taught me, oh, the things in the Western medicine are probably 30 years in the past. Like you need to go do your own research if you ever have a diagnosis. And so thank God I had that sort of priming and I went off on this, this, this inner journey to be able to connect in that way. So what I'm saying is that when psychosis doesn't complete, it looks a lot like what you're talking about. When the person doesn't have a supportive space to go, to be able to process the internal experience and have someone hold them and guide them through that process, 
it looks exactly what you're talking about. So most people, they'll see disjointed thoughts. They'll see things that don't make any sense. And they'll see a dysregulated person that can't take care of themselves. And I'm agreeing with you. I think that is what our general perception of psychosis is and what most people experience. What I am suggesting is that the future that I envision is one with which when people undergo psychosis, first of all, they're not met by police officers who often shoot them or restrain them in some way. They're not given, I mean, benzodiazepines can be useful in specific situations, but I mean, it's the history of the, it's the, it was branded as the chemical lobotomy, as far as I can tell. I mean, I think you can see ads where it was like, you know, when lobotomies were in vogue, it's like, we now have a chemical version of that. I mean, that was really the pharmacological transition from lobotomy into what we have as psychiatry. Yeah, and benzos, I think, can be really useful for people for very short periods, right? Like for yes. a week, maybe at the very most two weeks. And then after that, they, I think they're they're extremely risky. And I think, fortunately, I think medicine has kind of come to realize this and, and kind of pull back on them. Although you see, you still, frighteningly, do see them prescribed for longer periods, which which is quite scary. The history of psychiatry, let's be clear, we used to literally take, we used to literally put like ice picks through their eye and scramble their prefrontal cortex. That was the foundation of what we did as humans. And so the benzo introduction, I mean, you can see the advertising for this. It was branded as the chemical version of a lobotomy. That was what the marketing materials going out to these folks. And it was like celebrated as that. So I'm not saying they don't have useful, it's a useful tool, but I think that there's a whole other world available that psychiatry, and by the way, I don't, I think that you have to break eggs to make an omelet. I think that we humans are experimenting and moving and there's not like a shame plex around even modern psychiatry because, you know, to, to a large degree, modern psychiatry until quite recently, you know, until the work of activists in the psychedelic space like Rick Doblin and the folks that kept it alive in the underground, their hands were tied to be able to utilize the most effective tools that we have to be able to explore and heal the psyche in that way. So I've healed my relationship to the institution of psychiatry. I mean, I had like a really adversarial relationship for a while, but I, I've just come to understand it's very well-intentioned people that are learning and progressing and that there are things that are currently being brought into that mix that are helpful. And what's great is that I've met many psychiatrists now and met many therapists that are part of this model, right? The idea that the symptom someone is experiencing is a half-expressed cure or a half-expressed, it's the medicine really. It's feeling more of it. It's going more into the fear, more into the anxiety, more into the space in a supportive environment so that one can regenerate their default mode network. By the way, this is what's happening. I would say, I mean, the research with LSD initially was like, oh, it induces something quite like psychosis, right? Like that's what they were mailing it out to doctors for. They'd say, this is interesting. When you take this, it makes you feel like you're going psychotic. Psychiatrists should take this so they can see what it's like to be psychotic, right? That was how it was branded. They were giving out doses to anyone that would take them to give people that experience. And so I would say, yes, the psychedelic is occasioning this psychotic experience. It's the, it's the letting go of the default mode network enough to try to form some new connections. And yes, it's a risky process, right? It's like, it's similar to the tardigrade, I think. The coolest thing about the tardigrade, when it's under stress, again, my understanding of the tardigrade and why I find it to be endearing, you have many of listeners that will correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the genome of the tardigrade contains like double digit percentages of other organisms. And the tardigrade is able to survive in these like very intense environments, like very intense, intense contexts. And one of the strategies that it has, I mean, is like if the environment gets too tough, if it's an environment where it feels like I can't survive in this place, this is my understanding of it. So I'm 
welcome criticism around this if this is incorrect. But my working understanding of the tardigrade is that when under stress will, in a random-like way, it will absorb other pieces of DNA from its environment sort of as a like interspecies sex experience to see if it could, you know, and sort of randomly find something that will help it survive. It's like a last ditch effort and probably doesn't work most of the time, but sometimes like, oh, there's another living organism that's kind of in this environment along with me. And I can grab a piece of that DNA to kind of mix with my own in some way. I mean, this is the, again, basic understanding of how the tardigrade operates. Yeah. Well, I, re- I recommend uh, Google image searching the tardigrade, also known as a water bear. Yes. But yeah, they look amazing. They have really tiny microorganisms and They've done crazy experiments on them, like blast them with radiation or literally put them in space. And they see that they see that they can actually uh, survive in some of these just ridiculously extreme environments. This could just be, you know, sort of like the ostrich. This could be my ostrich with its head in the sand moment. Something like 16% of the genome comes from other organisms. So the tardigrade is doing psychosis, like biological psychosis. You have a belief structure in your brain. You reach a point where you're kind of out of your depth. You're in a new context. It's very stressful. It's very crazy. Your brain goes into this space. You acquire some new knowledge. Now, this does not have to go into full-blown psychosis, by the way. I think that people experience some version of this in healthy learning environments all the time. I think people experience this in conversations with you. You know, they pick up some of your intellectual or philosophical DNA to having a conversation with you, and they integrate it with themselves. That's how we learn. But in a certain case, because of biology, because of our environment, because of previous trauma, because of the context, it can go into this space where it's like, well, I'm in a completely foreign land. I don't know what's happening. And I need to try to find some new belief system that's going to work. I need to find some new structure to orient my environment that's going to work. And then from that place, people have experiences like Ayla, where they go through it and they come out the other side. I bet that if she would have gone to a If someone would have taken, if she didn't have the awareness that she had probably from her journey work with psychedelics and those, and those states of consciousness came up and didn't have the privilege and didn't have the experience that she had, it's quite possible that an experience like that lands someone on ER where they're on benzos and they're being told they need to be on those the rest of their life. I see it all the time. So I just wanted to point out some ways I think we agree and in some ways I think we disagree. Um, On the ways we agree, I think the importance of framing around experiences is so critical. And one really compelling example of this is this woman who had psychosis for many years still has it sometimes, and she experiences it as voices in her head that talk to her and tell her to do things. And she had this actually for years and was kind of like totally fine with it. Like, okay, there are these voices, these beings that talk to me and, you know, but whatever. Then one day she made the mistake of mentioning it to someone who completely freaked out and made her really afraid about it. Now, I, I, I shouldn't say it's a mistake to tell people about these experiences. That wasn't her fault. I, it was only a mistake because she had the unfortunate luck that this person reacted the way they did. So anyway, this person then freaked her out, and she was then told that there was something horribly wrong with her. And at that point, she had a, a shift in her perspective, and now she became afraid of the voices. And suddenly, her life was like a living nightmare. Like, you're, like you're being stuck with like demons in your mind, right? And eventually it took her a long time, but she kind of came out the other side of that. She still has these voices, but now she's managed to like kind of reframe them being like, okay, this is just part of me. These voices are me. It feels like I don't control them, but like they're just expressing some part of myself. And also they want to help me. And even if they say some things that are scary, they're just, they still have my best interest at heart. Right. And this was kind of transformational for her. So I, I just want to point out that like, I think we agree that the way that you process this stuff is just incredibly important. And 
viewing the state as just like, oh, this is all bad. There's nothing good about this can actually be quite damaging in the sense that like it can both make it a worse experience and more terrifying, but also can prevent you from like getting useful stuff out, out of what's happening. If you are going to have voices in your head, right, it's much better to view them as like looking out for your own interest and just stuff that you can hear and not necessarily act on, but just kind of take into account rather than, you know, these scary demons inside you that you've got to get rid of, right? I think that where we're aligned here is so, so I would say, well, that's the culture failing, right? Because that person that she's interacting with is existing in a culture where hearing voices and talking to yourself is this horrible, terrible, scary thing that needs to be medicated or whatever, right? And so there could be a culture which is like, no, like it's quite normal to hear voices actually. Like I would say the vast majority of people hear voices of some sort in their head. They just kind of identify it as themselves so they don't view it as scary. If you've been to Rome, you know, go look at the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. It's a brain with a whole bunch of voices inside of it. I mean, there's this really beautiful sort of idea that Mike, you know, Michelangelo was hiding. I mean, if you look at the, it's a, it's like the cross section of a human brain. I mean, there's this whole idea that like those are actually, it's actually a human brain and that God is sort of coming out from the brain, touching man. And that all of those angels and people like inside that, those are the different personality pieces, right? I mean, this is before we have the idea of psychological theory, but the contained within the mind is God. And that it's all of these different pieces, all these different parts of us. Those are the voices, right? And like, so an integrated experience would be this, the wisdom of, I can work with all of these pieces and I can connect. In my view, that would be what I would be working with there. I think it's beautiful. That's like in the Sistine Chapel. See, it's so funny because I think this is just such a good case in point about apophenia. So I think what you're referring to, so I pulled up the image, is like around God in the image are all these little like angels kind of surrounding him and it, and it almost looks like, a brain that all these characters together. See, I would just never notice that. Like I, I could, I've looked at this painting probably a hundred times and I've never seen that. This is such a, like, a good example where like someone could look at this and be like, oh, that looks like a brain. Just see that pattern. And other people who are lo- less yeah. like sensitive pattern recognizers would just never see it. They, no matter how many times they looked at it. It seems like it's a fairly detailed thing. I mean, it's a mystery in a way. There's a whole other level of conversation around like beautiful spiritual synchronicities and things that happen, even if the author wasn't aware of them, like there's some deeper thing happening there. I guess what I'm saying is that with your friend, I would just hope that that person could grow up in a culture where that isn't the case. Like she doesn't have to go through that trauma of a culture that says, oh my God, all these things are horrible. If that person would have met me and I've worked with many people like this, we just work to integrate those parts. You know, any good transpersonal therapist or any, any, um, somatic therapists worth their salt would be able to work with that person and help them navigate through that experience. So they can actually, they can be more embodied. They can feel those parts. They can, they can learn to love that part of themselves versus kind of join in the culture saying this part of you is wrong. You know, culture is not perfect, right? Like culture is this evolving operating system. And at a certain point, like some people need to take responsibility for that culture. We can't just be running the same programming, like things move, things change. And I do think that there's you talked about apophenia, like there is this appears to be a correlation between high intelligence, high creative creativity and things like schizophrenia in our current culture. There is, I mean, there's probably some upper limit on creativity intelligence where it just becomes too, you know, or there's some, you know, it just, it takes you off into some deep space and nature has had to kind of account for that. I guess what I am hoping to do is to carve out some space to be able to expand the range with which people are able to sort of come back and integrate into reality and be able to bring their gifts to the world where they don't feel like they've got a pillow wrapped around their head for the rest of their life with these super intense medications. And I've worked with many of these people, people have been medicated on, and this isn't just psychosis. I don't think you have to go through a psychosis to experience like 
what it's like to be trying to deal with depression for years and be given medications that they just keep changing the thing, move this, try this, try this. I would say if you give that person a context to like go into their hopelessness, go deeply into it in a container with another human being that isn't going to say your hopelessness is wrong, that you need to change this. And they can help you feel it somatically that on the other side of that hopelessness is hope. Every single time I, I mean, I see it in my clients all the time. And I see this with the folks, you know, the, the other professionals that I work with that are coaches that are trauma informed or somatic therapists and folks that do this work professionally, that there is a process of integration. And I, I mean, I witnessed it firsthand myself. I've seen it in other folks. And I think that the research is going to be more and more aligned with this. Like, I don't think it is a woo-woo thing. I think it's actually just that we've kind of had a fundamental misunderstanding about human biology to a certain extent. And in the same way that we were, didn't really understand psychedelics. And as the culture starts to integrate and becomes more open to altered states of consciousness, there's more opportunity to first of all, go into those states independently so that when you have a big transition, you can realize, oh, I need to go into an altered state. I need to take some time to be able to integrate this new version of my identity so that I can come back and be a father or be a elder in the tribe or kind of take responsibility for culture. This is the biggest thing. And on some level, it's taking responsibility for culture versus being kind of enslaved to culture. At a certain point in our growth and development, we become the keepers of the culture. And so that is really, I think, the part that I'm, to a large degree, is part of my part of my work, is to create that space so that if we can get less people that end up on medications in spaces that aren't super supportive for them, I want people to be able to regenerate those lobster shells and go on and do their thing in the world. One more thing I just want to say about where I think we agree, and then I'll go on to how I think we disagree. I think we agree that the kind of psychosis-like experiences are much more common than are generally acknowledged. Just for example, a friend of mine went on a new type of birth control and had experiences where she literally hallucinated there being people that weren't there. She said one day she went back to her room and there was a woman sitting on her bed, which she was really surprised by. And she started talking to this woman. And then like after a few minutes, realized this woman was not a person. There was nothing there. And, and you know, she went off the medicine and, you know, the, the experience didn't happen again. Another person I know, th- this was also triggered by, a, a, it was some kind of medical patch they got. And what happened is they started to realize that they believed that objects in their environment were evil. And so they started to think like, oh, the soap is evil. and the broom is evil. And then the objects in the environment started to kind of like talk to them and tell them to do things that they knew were bad. And they, they found this like extremely upsetting. I remember what they told me one example where they were standing in their kitchen and there was a knife there and like the soap was telling them to take the knife and kill their brother. And they like had this feeling they couldn't disobey the soap, but they could just stand perfectly still. So they just stood perfectly still until their brother walked away. So this, yeah, obviously terrifying experience. My point is just that these things, ha- this person went off this and then and they didn't get this experience again. So the point I'm trying to make here is that like, there are actually a lot more people that have these kinds of experiences, I think, than generally is acknowledged. Yes. No, I think that's, I think that's great. I do want to, I do want to comment a couple of things in the, in the birth control example, you know, birth control is not natural for humans. So, and, and, and I thank God for your friend that, that she had the support to just get off that birth control. There's a whole other world where She's just given antipsychotics or some additional medication to handle the side effects of the. No, totally. And then she would have just like the birth control would have been continuing to to cause this stuff, and she would be medicated on top of it. Absolutely, could go out of control. 
Exactly. So that, so to me, I classify that as a culture problem and thank God that she was able to find a way through that, you know, that cultural problem of this birth control piece. That's like hijacking her hormone system, which has great benefit in one hand. And there's a tr- tremendous amount of, there's a payoff, there's a trade-off there that people have to make in a huge way. Um, and then the other piece was, again, it was, it was art. It was a, you know, chemical, a medical patch or something. And it was a side effect of that. However, one of the things that you would work with, with that person, if, if this person had come in without it being chemically induced, right? Like say a person came in and they're like, oh, the soap is evil and it's killing me or something, right? I'm not going to argue this is right or wrong. Let me step you into a frame of how someone would work with that psychosis. And I'm not, I'm not unique on this. People dedicate their lives to this type of work. And there's people might be curious about psychosis in Lapland. There's been some really good work with a process called open dialogue in Lapland, where they basically just get everyone together and they tell the truth and psychosis seems to resolve. And people offer opinions and they tell truth, et cetera. So in that particular case, assuming that person was in a state of psychosis and they were like, you know, soap is evil. What I would say is like, okay, that's not, not true. I would say, look, does your soap have toxins in it? Yes. Is it killing you? Maybe on some level is consumer capitalism killing you? Are these objects in your environment somehow evil? Is, are, meaning, are they causing harm on some level that you might be attuned to now because you've stepped into this space? The answer to that is yes. And so if I'm in that space with that person, I'm not going to, oh, you're crazy. You shouldn't think the soap is evil. I'd say, no, I'd step into that. I'd join them in that reality and in a way that I could feel authentic with. You acknowledge the emotional experience they're having. You step into it and you have a conversation from that place. And in a way, like your friend is hearing voices and all of a sudden someone says, oh my God, and freaks out. What often happens is people enter into these states of consciousness. Someone that they trust freaks out and so they take on that belief system. It's like they're in a very vulnerable place. So they're going to take on the projection this other person is having about what they're going through. If you can help them work through that and say, well, yeah, like the soap is kind of evil. Like when you go to an ER and they're trying to shoot you up, it is kind of, they are kind of out to get you in the sense that like, they don't really know what they're doing and they're maybe harming you in a certain extent. Like there's a way of leaning into the reality the person is in. And this is not entirely novel to this experience. I mean, to a certain extent, it's a certain type of empathy. It's a bit more out there. It's a bit more like you have to think, it's almost like a puzzle sometimes you have to think through. But because I've been in those states of consciousness, like I can have a conversation with someone that thinks they're an alien or thinks they're talking to Jesus or do these things. And because my nervous system isn't going to freak out, most people's nervous systems freak the fuck out when someone says, I think I'm Jesus, or I think I'm Buddha, or I think I'm God, or I'm suicidal because the the person holding space for that person has reached their own limit of what they have learned about these experiences and hasn't gone through a similar experience to guide someone through, they freak out, they take them to an ER, they, you know, this thing, they don't support it in a way that is getting connected to them. And this is, by the way, this is exactly what people do in psychedelic therapy space. You need to be present and resource in yourself and you need to hold space for all of that. Because you could be on an LST therapy session with someone and they might think the soap is killing me and the soap is telling me to get a knife and all these things. And so you need to have a safe environment. You need to have someone that can hold space and protect them in that way. And so what I am saying is that the knowledge we're gaining from holding space in psychedelic space, what would be required in a culture that was able to help move people through those states of consciousness or to move through psychosis in that way are the same thing that it's the same skill set, it's the same approach, it's the same transpersonal understanding. And to recognize that the visions that the people that we're calling mad are having are valuable. There's valuable information there. I don't think you'll find a person on the planet that will say, 
I imagine the soap industry could be killing your, like there, there's a way that I'm working with the metaphor there. It's almost as if there's a metaphor happening and there's a deeper feeling. Now this in case was, in this case, it was potentiated by the, the medicine they were taking, but in a way, and then you might, you might say this is apophenia. I would say that's driving the point home. This person is experiencing some chemical, some foreign chemical from the, the current culture in their system. That's poisoning them, causing them to hallucinate. And this thing, these objects are poisonous. So it's like, I would look at it as a metaphoric experience that if there's someone who can work with them in their, join them in their metaphor and not be afraid by it, that that person would have a much higher chance of resolving it versus being told you shouldn't be hearing these voices. It's terrifying. Or even a family system where people say you shouldn't be feeling your sadness. You shouldn't ever feel failure. You shouldn't ever feel anxious. You should only feel happy. This is a spectrum that I would say that's happening in our culture right now. So I feel very grateful that I had those experiences and was able to return back to a regulated nervous system and have been able to do that time and time again, because I feel like it's given me a, a perspective to be able to say, I can join you in those states and I feel comfortable helping you navigate through them. Right. And if the person said, oh, the soap is an angel, the soap is healing, you, you would also be able to roll with that just as easily because you would have identified the metaphor in that too. All I'm saying here is like, you know, at, at a basic level, there's some basic biological stuff happening, you know, attachment theory, attunement. When we humans get an emotional experience inside of us that we don't know what to do with, we bring it to another adult. We bring it to another person. And this is, and this is the foundation of how we learn to navigate our internal world. I mean, in a way we exist first as a relationship and then we individuate. I mean, that's, that's kind of a different perspective to look at that when a kid is born, it's got this tiny brain and an undeveloped prefrontal cortex and a deep need to survive. So it bonds emotionally with mom, first of all, and it outsources all the regulation of the, the, you know, the, the, the limbic system and the, the more primary parts of the brain. It outsources the prefrontal cortex to mom or, you know, or caregiver through attunement. And what's that mean? Well, kid, kid moves out of its comfort zone has an experience, maybe gets freaked out, cuts his knee, gets in a fight at school, teacher picks on her, whatever. She comes home, she's feeling some emotion. In a healthy family system, mom or caregiver is going to empathetically feel that emotion and then is going to give it a label. Oh, you're feeling afraid, you're feeling this. Mom's not freaking out because kid's afraid. A healthy mom is resourced, you know, a healthy caregiver is resourced, grounded. They're not like, oh my God, I'm gonna put you on medication. They're gonna be able to feel the emotion of the kid regulate her own nervous system. And she can do that to the degree with which she's dealt with her own previous traumas and kind of her own stuff. But if she can hold space for that kid to have their mini psychosis, which is like literally thinking that there's some crazy thing happening in the world, they get back to a place of resolution. Most people don't always get that. And so they, they bump up these, they bump up against these edges of emotions they can't deal with, parts of themselves that get fractured and fragmented. I mean, this is a pretty standard kind of model for understanding the, the attunement and, and why that's important right? Better to be attuned to mom and cut off a big part of myself emotionally or spiritually or intellectually than to be left to the wolves, you know, so to speak, just by myself because I've been kicked out of the tribe. So I have to fight to stay in connection with mom and I'll sacrifice and hold back lots of parts of myself. As an adult, of course, our task is to reclaim and recover those parts so that we can then become a full, whole integrated adult. I would say this is the exact thing that's happening in that psychosis space. There's a person having a dysregulated experience. They have language to describe that experience. And if I tell them that they're wrong, or if I make them wrong for having the experience, it's really on a biological level, no different than a mom telling her kid, like, don't be sad. You are not to be sad. You are not to feel failure. Like, as opposed to, oh, wow, that's, that is intense. You're like, you're feeling sad, like a good therapist would do. So what I am just saying is that there's an extension of kind of the current body of knowledge of parenting, attunement, attachment theory. We can see this wisdom in the wisdom traditions of 
you know, people kind of going off into the desert and having these, what we would call now psychosis experiences, but that a culture that can better hold them, whether it's through psychedelic experience or whether it's through a deeper understanding. And there's a, I mean, people are doing this. People are, you know, and I've sought out these therapists to work with over the years, the somatic folks, the transpersonal folks, et cetera. And then of course, learn to navigate that world on my own, that there is this bigger narrative of can the culture shift to be able to hold these experiences. And when they do, they can resolve. And it's just like, oh, you scraped your knee. You can get back out there and keep playing versus you're now on this medication the rest of your life. And you're going to be super limited and have a diminished sense of emotion, et cetera. I suspect the biggest point of disagreement we have is that I think you view all mental states as being valuable in some sense. Yes. And I think I think the way that I think about it is that they can be valuable to different degrees. Like I think there are mental states that are actually have just almost no value. And there are mental states that have like a lot of value and then kind of everything in between. Give me a mental state with zero value. Yeah. So a mental state with with zero value would probably be one where you're just in pure torturous pain, like someone's just stabbing you in the stomach. I don't think there's much value in that, if any. Yeah, just, you know, a knife, literal, a literal knife, not a figurative knife, a literal knife, someone just stuck into you. Okay, your, your case of zero value is having a knife stuck into you. Yeah, you're walking down the street, a stranger comes up, just stabs you with a knife. Is there value in that? I, I certainly wouldn't want to go stab somebody and think that I'm going to be adding value to them in that, in that capacity. Let me tell you a context where that pain is actually valuable, okay? Because I think this will help us. You're walking down the street, someone stabs you in the stomach, and maybe you survive, right? Let's hope that you survive. It was super traumatic, but as a result, you develop a phobia of walking down the street or, you know, something. Like, there's, there's something that's going on for you where your behavior and experience of life is significantly altered because of that experience. And so... In a therapeutic context, there'd be a couple ways to deal with that. One would say, let's give you this pill, let's give you this medication, give you this technique to never have to think about that experience again, which in a certain context can be very helpful. You want to overflow or, or flood someone's life with those experiences, for sure. And much better to have someone that can enjoy life to a certain degree and work and do these different things, et cetera, if they don't have a context to fully go in and heal those things. That said, if someone's like seeking relief from... PTSD, for example, from being stabbed in the stomach, it, it could be very valuable. And I would say almost required valuable for them to be able to go into a space where they can re-experience that moment, to re-experience it where they're not disassociating, they're not fragmenting, they're actually able to stay with and be with the process of that experience. And this might happen in a dream for them. It could happen in a therapist space. It could happen in journaling work that we do with PTSD, kind of the whole thrust of the PTSD work that's happening when it's when it's working to resolve it, like with MDMA, is that MDMA would bring you back to that moment to be able to make contact with that unexperienced experience, as one of my mentors likes to say. That it, we've captured information from that space, we've stored it away, and to really be able to integrate our full selves and let go of the neurosis that kind of developed to protect us from that experience, we would need to re-experience that pain. So I would say on some level, never wish those hardships on anyone, but you often can get a lot of value by revisiting them in the right supportive structure to be able to reclaim parts of yourself that you lost to deal with that trauma. See, I think you view it as, well, maybe hypothetically you could extract some value. Whereas I think of it as like that experience is inherently bad. If you get any value out of it later, that's great, but it's more like a silver lining and that experience is still a very bad experience. 
I'm not saying that we should go like stab people, you know? I mean, it's also why I'm against circumcision, you know? Like, I don't think we should be trauma. Like, let's be clear. I don't think we should be traumatizing people intentionally. Although there are cultures, we should say, there are cultures historically that have had a very intense motif on intentionally causing trauma and then taking people through a resolution process. That's a whole other conversation. But I want to make, I think that, that we might be missing each other in this. I'm saying that the first experience of having the knife in your gut, I mean, I think I have a particular sort of spiritual alignment that everything in life is happening for my growth and development on a spiritual level, which helps me kind of navigate the uncertainty and the craziness of all the pieces. And I see how those things have fit together in my own life. But barring that perspective, we can say there's a version of reality where getting stabbed in the stomach is not anything want anyone to ever experience. And, and I don't want anyone to experience that either. Just saying that if I did happen to me, I would, I know that I would find a way to make that meaningful in some way. You would. And I believe that. I believe you would find a way to make it meaningful. Yeah. Because in that moment, when you get stabbed in the stomach, my sense is that if you don't fully experience that pain in that moment, you are likely to develop a neurosis around the undifferentiated fear response that you'll take in. And that's what we call trauma. And so that even though you haven't had that experience, then you would need to experience that in a more fully supported, structured way. When I say experience it, I mean, releasing the emotion, going back into the part of you that's been fragmented. Because what happens, right, is we have a trauma experience that memory doesn't go, it doesn't go into our long-term memory. We hold pieces of that, like in, in the amygdala. We're holding pieces, different like variables of what is this, you know, on the street, this person, red t-shirt, whatever. And so part of that integration process of a trauma is to actually re is to is to experience it, not to re-traumatize someone, but for them to complete that experience. My mentor in this space talks about experience is something that happens over time, and we often will hide away we disassociate, we trap memories, we hold things inside of us because we're like, well, my cultural, my current context does not support me fully experiencing this. And so then we need to be able to make space to fully process that and integrate that. So, so I think what we're, I think we might be missing a little bit. I'm just saying that if one was stabbed in the stomach, that there could be great benefit in them fully experiencing it later on um, in a therapeutic context where they were um, supported and they could fully feel it. If they were having problems in their life, I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but if someone went through a traumatic thing where they found that they were terrified of going outside, the most direct path to be able to do that would be to allow them to go back into that state of consciousness with someone they trust and to work through it and to process through it. Mm -hmm. As a way of processing that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the feeling is valuable. The experience of getting stabbed, fuck, that's a threat. That's a real, that's a dangerous thing to have happen to you, right? And like the feeling of like, whoa, there's someone in my culture who like is trying to kill, like what's happening, you know, and there's a whole, well, then it's like, well, what's happening with that person? And often if someone goes into a psychedelic space, I mean, and this is very common experience in psychedelic space is that you would go into a space where you would get to a place. And this is, you know, a bit more esoteric, but listeners that have experienced psychedelics will know that this is and not even psychedelic. I mean, people that are in different spiritual parts, et cetera, there is a way to get yourself into a state of consciousness where you are legitimately grateful for the experience. Like there's a way of, I'm grateful for the person who stabbed me. And I got, I did get there during the, the DMT experience with going through a breakup I and mean, I wasn't stabbed, but it, you know, it certainly felt like it was going to kill me. And I got to a place of, I could see how it was serving me in some deeper way. And I, but again, I don't think that people have to believe that or have that kind of mapping of the deeper sort of aspects of life to appreciate that, when someone experiences a trauma, one of the more effective ways that we're learning to deal with it is to allow them to go back into it in some capacity, to fully experience it and to integrate it, and then to move through that with 
a new sense of, um, I guess, self and determination about what's possible for them in the world. Yeah. So to put the final piece on this, I guess your view is that these psychosis experiences sort of have an inherent value. And, you know, to make the metaphor to depression again, you know, like I do think that often there is some value in the depression people experience. There's something that they're getting from that. But I also think there's just a whole bunch of unnecessary suffering that's actually not doing them any good. And, and I think the same with psychosis. Like, I think there are aspects of it that can be beneficial to the person. And then there's huge swaths of unnecessary suffering. And then, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I really do think that for some people, those experiences really, they get almost no value from it and it, and it ruins their lives. And taking antipsychotics for some of them might be the best shot they have of kind of having a life of value again. I don't know what your feeling on that is. I would say that just because someone gets no value for something doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. I just want to say that as a first piece. And people had their legs chopped off because we didn't know how to give antibiotics, right? Like, and those people were able to live lives and have families and connect. And, you know, like historically, we've done a lot of things to people in service of trying to help them survive. And yes, if you cut someone's leg off before antibiotics so it doesn't get infected, you know, or it gets infected, great, awesome. But I think that we're moving towards something where, you know, we're developing antibiotics. We're developing a capacity to be able to say there's an alternate path. And so I don't have any shame or blame or criticism for folks that are, again, navigating what is a mainstream world that is just, you know, riddled with well, bad science or corporate interest, legacy systems, et cetera, in context that they might not be able to navigate through otherwise. Like I'm not, I might have a belief that like every person could navigate through this if they were given the right context. I just, I really stress that there is a right context for it. And without the right context, it could be re-traumatizing and cause them more challenge. And so, yes, I am deeply grateful for the innovations of an industry that worked to help preserve some quality of life for people. Absolutely. It's very noble, righteous, sacred work. I would say that my heart feels like it's in continuation of that work and that you and I actually do both share a deep desire to help end suffering. I think that that's one of the values that we both connect around. And so, whereas I would say, yes, if a person has the option of lifelong suffering, that's like a 10 out of 10 or medication, and that's it, let's give them medication. Let's help them reduce suffering to a certain degree. I, I think that the place that I've landed though, is that I'm mean, a deeper level. It's like, can we actually, as a species, learn how to suffer there's a saying that's sort of like, you know, our suffering is really only our inability to suffer. You know, we, we were resisting our suffering. And so we just suffer really badly. And so we can't go through a period of suffering that we can make meaning out of. I would love to be able to, and I'm a big part of my life's work is helping people to suffer in a way that resolves. And so that, the, that, that suffering can, by bringing meaning to it, I think that Chip Conley had this idea. That was what he brought to me years ago was sort of like pain without meaning is suffering. But if there's a way to bring meaning to it, then it's no longer suffering and there's pain there. And it's just, it's just pain. And I think it's kind of full circle because that ultimately is, right? That's the, the burden of the cross. It comes back to the very first piece we spoke about that life is, there's death, there's painful things, there's tragedy, there's getting stabbed in the stomach. There's all these things, all these things that kind of come at you in the gauntlet of life. And if we can embrace it, if we can go into it, I'm not saying go run into the knife. I mean, unless there's a context where that really feels like it's serving your highest good for, you know, save a friend or a comrade or something in battle. But generally speaking, embracing the pain of life, a willingness of it, surrendering to it, going to it with 
like you go into a workout, you go into a sprint for ultimate Frisbee, you go into the pain of losing a loved one. You take, you suck the marrow out of your grief so that you can feel what it's like to love fully and completely. And you can be touched to the depths of your soul by someone. I think that there's tremendous value in there. And so it really frames our conversation perfectly from my perspective and just that when we can find a way to bring meaning to suffering, it just becomes pain and it can be manageable. We can work through it. And again, I don't want people to suffer unduly. I think we both have a shared value of how do we eliminate suffering. I have just taken an alternate path. that's led me to what I feel like is a whole new, and again, I haven't invented many of these things. I've invented some new modalities, but there's a, a new toolbox that is helping us suffer better, helping us to eliminate suffering in a, in a way that is, for me, with a, high, a higher level of integrity to what all of us are sort of setting out to do in these spaces, which is to, you know, first do no harm and then to provide support for the growth and evolution of the individual. If you're feeling stressed or anxious and need to calm down quickly, you should try MindEase. MindEase is a free app for iOS, Android, and the web that uses scientifically proven exercises to help you relieve stress and anxiety in under 10 minutes. MindEase works with your specific situation and thought patterns. The exercises are interactive and engage you actively. You'll be writing, reflecting, making choices, reading, listening, and performing actions that are all designed to move you to a calmer state of mind. Since no two people experience anxiety the same way, why should we expect any single way of calming down to suit everybody? MindEase offers a range of evidence-based techniques for managing stress and anxiety. And sometimes it's tricky to tell how much better something has made you feel. So MindEase makes that simpler by measuring your state of mind before and after each exercise so that you can see exactly how well it worked. The app's insights page makes it easy to see what works for you and what doesn't. When you're feeling curious and eager to learn, the app's explore page has a wealth of tools aimed at helping you grow and understand yourself better. To find more info and to get the free MindEase app, go to mindease.io. That's M-I-N-D-E-A-S-E dot I-O. So I do actually think of this saying that the mystic swims in the same ocean that the psychotic drowns in is really powerful. And that's something that really meant so much to me. And to be able to hold that, to take the more mystic approach to things. So what does that look like? What does my life look like currently? I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I am building a coaching business called Earth Pilot. Our mission is to help build a steering system for spaceship Earth. We work with the most visionary leaders in the world around leadership, emotions, integration, sort of the more invisible aspects of life. We have a program called Alchemy. And some of the world's most brilliant folks are a part of that community. We just got a beautiful testimonial from a, a gentleman named Justin Rosenstein, who I've worked with for about three years. And Justin is co-founder of Asana, which many of us have probably used, you know, really successful software company. And we've supported Justin in leaving Asana and recognizing that his Dharma was something bigger, that he had a vision to really kind of go to work on the UX of the economic system, so to speak, to kind of imagine a new economic system for the world. He left Asana. He has a project called One Project. 
We also supported him through having his first child. He's also got a, just really going through a really beautiful kind of point of personal transformation. Talk to Justin every week. We'll even give a link to the testimonial from Justin. They can see that kind of work. We also, you know, we work with other company founders, people who are in points of transition. And this is not a point of like bragging, but like our coaching programs are some of the most sought after in the world. And, you know, it's to work with me one-on-one these days is fifty dollars to $100,000 a year. We have group programs that we're developing. And I would say that this thing that the West told me was not valuable has become my greatest gift. My capacity to step into spaces that are unfamiliar, my capacity to hold space for a whole variety of consciousness, to be able to navigate the wisdom traditions, the deep spirituality, to be able to step into a playful space of exploring those without judgment, and to really just show up as a human being that feels at once in awe and mystery, sometimes frightened, but at a deeper level, just very sure that all this works out in a beautiful way. That's my work. And I feel very connected to my Dharma. I feel like that this supporting the world's most visionary leaders in bringing together this new vision for a future, whatever that looks like, really is meant to be my work. And so I, I, it would be very hard pressed for me to say that, that any of these past experiences weren't valuable because I draw on every single one of them every day when I show up to, to serve my clients. And we've had amazing, amazing transformations of helping people reconnect to these lost parts of themselves. You know, a woman that was struggling as an actress in New York who was able to go through a process of transformation and really reconnect to these deeper parts and emotions of her who is now sober and who just landed a leading role in a Netflix film with John Malkovich and attributes that to this alchemical process of developing a deeper sense of connection to herself. We have tons and tons of testimonials like that. And I've done coaching work for the last 20 years. It's just that this process of being in rapport with these deeper parts of myself that sometimes would show up in what the West would call psychosis, I've recognized and learned how to work with those states of consciousness because I believe every piece of me is valuable. And if those pieces come up, I will do my best to integrate them and to bring them back home where they belong, which is inside of me and in my heart. And that's the work that I'm doing with people. It's deeply rewarding. I've never felt like I had more freedom creatively to just be myself in sessions with people. And I'm, by the way, in awe and humbled every single day that people show up. The, the business has been 100% referral for the last several years. We're just starting to do some outreach stuff as we expand. And now it is kind of looking to see who exactly we need to work with in the world. Seeing that we're noticing patterns from you know, executives and company founders that are sort of struggling, kind of feeling alone at the top and don't have anyone to talk about. You know, we are certainly the people that will not tell you that those voices you're hearing inside need to be shamed and go away. We can help work with and integrate those things. And we feel like we've been getting incredible success with the folks we're working with. So I'm really passionate about that. And of course, as you know, I also do a bunch of other random stuff. We, we talked about a book giveaway. I'm just going to plug this in here, you know, like doing AI research and stuff. So wrote the, this book, Autonomous Haiku Machine in collaboration with GPT-3. It's a bunch of beautiful haikus written by, uh, really just said, write a book of haikus and generated it. We used a, a StyleGAN network to generate some beautiful art for that. So like everything in the whole book is generated by AI, right? Even the cover? Yeah, the title, the cover, the subtitle, Autonomous Haiku Machine written by AI randomly generated without human intervention uh, to the foreword, you know, to these very deep, beautiful poems. Like I'll actually read one to you. The last one, dying will be easy and not at all terrible when I'm with you. 
<laughs> wow, that's kind of disturbing, to be oh, honest. Great. So, um, it's so beautiful. So you can get a digital copy of this if you go to anthonydavidadams.com slash AI. You can also download like 50 Zoom backgrounds that I generated with StyleGen after I trained it on this really dope Instagram account that does all these like hand collages, like thousands of handmade psychedelic landscape collages. You can get the digital copy of the book for free. You can get the, the backgrounds for free if you want. And also, I don't know, I don't know what, what your readership is, but I would love to gift like 10 print copies. I can do like 10 autographed print copies of the book to anybody that, you know, maybe, I don't know how you do this if they comment or something, but. Okay, if you, you, could, tweet, you could tweet the episode and, and tag Anthony. I appreciate that, Anthony. Thank you. Tag Spencer and tag Anthony, you know, at Anthony Adams and at. At Spencer Greenberg. Tweet out the episode and say, I want the uh, AI book. And I will, I will personally send out 10 autographed copies. We only the limited printing of these. They're on Amazon if you want one, but you know, I'll give you one. You can also get the whole thing as PDF. And Spencer, I, I love that you said, you said that this was one of the most Anthony things to do. Remember when you said that about this book? Oh, for sure. For sure. Because <laughs> uh, my recurring experience with you, Anthony, is that something will happen in the world and then you'll suddenly react. And like within like 24 hours, you've already like started a new business based on it or something. And I'm like, or you've like made a new book based on it or, or, or a new game. So yeah, super Anthony thing to do. I thrive at the edge, you know, and I really do feel like I'm thriving Spencer. I mean, it really is a thing where I feel like I've integrated, I've made peace with like the world religions that I was kind of at war with. I've made peace with Western psychiatry, you know, we started the decriminalized nature nonprofit in New York city a year ago. I founded that we're about to get, I would say within this year, fingers crossed, you're going to see psychedelic decriminalization, if not at the state level, for sure at the, the New York city level. So, you know, that work of spreading the space for folks to get access to these medicines. Uh, I've been collaborating with doctors and psychiatrists have, have, have developed some new protocols with oxytocin, kind of helping some people along. Yeah. That didn't, way. You, didn't you uh, <laughs> can I just tell the story about you? Uh, so one time I see Anthony and he's like, he's like vaping something, which I assume is an e-cigarette and it's actually oxytocin that you were vaping. And so I ask him like, is that a thing? I've never heard of that. And he's like, no, no, I just made it up. And then now you apparently convinced some researchers to start testing it as a protocol and do studies on this like vaping oxytocin. Is that correct? Yeah. So the oxytocin piece was like, you know, one of my biggest challenges in life has been relationship. It's kind of been this thing that like, you know, my parents divorced when I was younger. There was a lot of gaslighting that happened. I actually think that that was the fundamental fracture that kind of caused me to go into this like split reality where it was like, well, I can't trust the people that I thought I was supposed to trust the most because they're lying to me about what happened. Um, there's actually an amazing book by Artie Lang who posits that many cases of schizophrenia he talks about, that there's, a, there's often a connection between dishonesty in the home and what's showing up in the people. That's a whole other episode. But I've been fascinated by relationship, but I'm often struggling in the space of relationship personally. And so that's been one of my greatest teachers. Going through a breakup, some of my men's group was like, oh, you should try a cuddle therapist. And so I was like, yeah, I'll experiment. I went. It was incredible, Spencer. Like, you know, I've had sexual trauma in the past. I was assaulted when I was 25. And I've often had some issues sexually where when I'm with a woman, like, it just becomes a bit, it's like, I, you know, part of me closes down. That trauma is still there. And when I went to this cuddle therapist, it was so beautiful to be able to have this close physical connection with a woman that I didn't need to like support emotionally and just, you know, wasn't sexual. It was so healing. And then I became fascinated by it. I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? And then I went down a tunnel of like cuddle therapy into oxytocin. 
I spent like two months. I read every paper on oxytocin that I could find. And I came to find out that there's, you know, it's like crazy. It's basically like a hug, like in the same way when you're a kid and you're hurt and like someone gives you a hug, you start to heal. There is, you Google oxytocin plus whatever it is, cancer, mental health, like any of the major ailments, there is like emergent research showing up. It's like, these things are connected that like oxytocin can help reduce like cancer cell growth. Like it's this crazy field and it's primarily only used with women to help them when they're not breastfeeding properly. They'll like give women oxytocin helps them like let down their milk. I think it's called. But yeah, through reading all that, I read all these papers. I also then found like one study that was done with rhesus monkeys where they were trying to figure out, does oxytocin increase in the brain? Because there's effects that oxytocin is both a neurotransmitter and a hormone. So it's like, it kind of functions as both. And they were trying to see, does it cross the blood brain barrier? And what they found was that if you injected it, or if you did like a nasal spray, it was not really showing up in cerebral spinal fluid. But if you used a nebulizer, which is like a little ultrasonic speaker that's, that vibrates really fast and then creates like a cold mist, you'd see it in like your, um, your, your humidifier, you know, in a, like an ultrasonic humidifier, that if you nebulized oxytocin, that the, that the brain concentrations were like orders of magnitude beyond what was normally available versus IV or versus nasal spray. And the crazy thing was all of the research I saw besides this one study was all using nasal spray. I still have a note to like email all the research and say, you guys should really try to experiment with uh, nebulization because sometimes the results are inconclusive and they don't really know. But the nasal spray and the IV were basically very low changes in brain concentrations, but nebulization was huge. So I went and like, I sourced oxytocin. You used to be able to buy it on Amazon. I think someone was just selling oxytocin on Amazon. Like it's, I think a scheduled substance. It's kind of like a gray area. Pickup artists often like buy it to like feel more confident or like, you know, salespeople buy it to like, it's like a hack or something. But I just, I sourced it off Amazon. You can't get it there anymore, but there is still a company that called OxyLove that will sell it to you. And then, yeah, I sourced these nebulizers. Can I just say this is highly experimental and I, you know, I don't really recommend anyone do this unless they're- Hold yeah. on, hold on. Yes, 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 yes. Let's say this is not something that, I mean, I had started developing this and was like, oh yeah, oxytocin. And then I, I haven't talked about it and I haven't like released it um, because I self-experimented with it. It's like- yeah. So I sourced and developed this prototype piece that could, you know, and we used it. We were like using it socially. I was experimenting with it. I noticed that it had very similar effects to MDMA. And I kind of have a theory that like partially why MDMA is useful is that it releases oxytocin as well, but why it makes sense. MDMA is relaxing the nervous system so you can feel and process and integrate emotion. It's the, literally the same as when you get into a fight in the playground and you come home and your mom gives you a big hug and you feel safe. Oxytocin is working on that same place. And so I found it to be healing, but at the same time, like I also have recently just kind of gotten more interested in like full departure from molecular enhancement of my psyche. I kind of go through these cycles of like just wanting to kind of experiment with altered states of consciousness through extreme sobriety. So currently like that's my iteration, but yeah, the, the oxytocin protocol, I introduced it to my, uh, my partner, my girlfriend, who's a psychedelic therapist. We actually met our first time we met, we like tried it together. Yeah. And so she was like, this could be really useful. I'd love to use this for therapy. She actually started doing some digging and she found, cause she, she's a therapist that works with uh, a psychiatrist that prescribes ketamine. So they're, so they're, they're doing work with prescribing ketamine. The therapist sits with the person. Um, they're able to go into those spaces together, but her interest was like, I can use this for therapy. And, you know, cause I'm not like a licensed person. I just kind of like coming from an underground background now moving into the above ground with the coaching work and everything like that. I was like, this is interesting. 
And so she was very fascinated by it. She started to do some research and she did find that some of the ketamine pharmacies actually would say said, you know, we have a couple of people that are experimenting with ketamine and oxytocin together. So there's like this underground, not even underground, there's like sort of a disparate community of people that are discovering oxytocin has uses far beyond what it's currently being used for. I mean, there's a couple of books on Amazon. I've read all of them as far as I can tell. But one was like by a doctor who was giving it to women. His son was killed in a tragic accident. 10-year-old son, I think, was killed like in a, by a train. It's a horrible thing. And he could not get over the grief. It was like plaguing him day in, day in, day in. He'd see a train and he would just, it would just, the memories would come back and he was just so stuck in that, right? Ruining his life. And he remembered some research he read about oxytocin. So he tried it. He said that he woke up at what's called the hour of the wolf, right? Which is like, it's kind of this historic, it's like a more of a, an archaic term, so to speak, but it's like, you know, four or five in the morning before the sun comes up, you wake up in the hour of the wolf and it's usually where your anxiety is most intense or your fear, your grief is really there. I would say it's because you're, when you're in your dream state, your default mode network is slightly relaxed. And then your subconscious material is closer to the surface. We do a lot of work with that. But he was able to use oxytocin in those moments. He took it a couple times. He was very measured with it because he understood the power of it. Certainly a lot more responsible than I was when I was kind of, we literally would have like a bunch of these things. We'd be going around Manhattan, like just people were just doing oxytocin all the time. It was a whole experience. Again, I don't, um, I don't recommend it. And I think that this is actually a scheduled thing. So like I've gotten rid of my, it's like this company sells it and I'm still trying to get an answer. It's like, am I allowed to buy it from this company that sells it on Amazon? Like, I just don't know. It's like unclear. But he was able to use it in a very measured way. And he said that the grief lifted, something opened. And what I would say is he went from sympathetic engagement into a more parasympathetic space, the healing side of things. He was able to reform his consciousness. I would say that there's probably a huge application of oxytocin in the psychosis space. I would love to see studies done with people that are going through psychosis being given an oxytocin treatment versus a benzo. I would pit oxytocin over benzos for someone in psychosis in the right context any day of the week. I know I'm so aggressive about that, but, but uh, <laughs> hopefully more research will be done on it. If you're going to do it, there's books people can read. There's tons of studies. You know, I would say go through that process. I certainly, now, because I've talked about it enough publicly, I should probably put together like a, here's a training or here's a video or whatever on oxytocin that you can check out. Yeah. I, I do this stuff. And then it's like, I also am very, like, I didn't share my story of overcoming psychosis for years, Spencer, because I was terrified that like I was wrong or my thesis was off. And like, if I even talked about it, that somebody might go off and find themselves in a challenging situation. So I guess I should say to land the plan on this, like, cause now you got you thinking about the implications of just me sharing what I talk about. If people want to connect, I'm always available to just, and I, I just gift time to people so they can go to my website. They can book time with me if they're going through stuff and they're like, well, I heard this thing. And then I got myself into some weird situation. Like give me a call. See if I can help support you through that. Um, but you know, fact check your, me, go see if like lobsters really molt, go see if there actually is horizontal gene transfer. Like, you know, this is, you gotta, you gotta do there. You got, cause I'm i I'm a fallible human being, you know, in the same way that researchers miss stuff, I'm certainly missing shit all the time. So I, I, I don't, I welcome any kind of critique or if people are saying, I think you're off on this. That's why Spencer, I love our conversation so much, but yeah, again, I don't want to say don't do these things or to do them, but just you know, there is a body of research that folks can look at and experiment with. And I recognize that many of the current interventions that could bring someone relief from suffering are out of bounds of the current mainstream space. As a person, like, it feels like I would be 
out of integrity to not share my own experiences and discoveries, you know, along the, and kind of compare notes on the path with folks, which is really what I'm mostly, really what I'm trying to do. Like, can we just compare notes on the path and see other opportunities to, to grow and to learn and to, and to move forward with some of these things. So like Spencer said, some tweet out this podcast episode to at Anthony Adams and at Spencer Greenberg on Twitter. Um, we'll give out 10 copies of the book autographed. Also, I will do a thing where if you go to the website and download the, um, digital version of the autonomous haiku machine. I'll also pick some people randomly that signed up for that from this podcast. Um, and I'll give them some autograph copies too. Awesome. Anthony, this was a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. You hold such an amazing space and I really feel grateful for the opportunity here. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at clearerthinkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 321-341-4669. To find out more about Spencer, visit spencergreenberg.com. To find out more about Anthony, take a look at his bio in the show notes. And to find out more about our show, visit clearerthinkingpodcast.com. If you like the show, we hope you'll rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and we hope that you'll tell your friends about us on social media. We also hope you'll subscribe to our email newsletter called One Helpful Idea. Each week, we'll send you one idea that we think is really valuable that you can read about in just 30 seconds, along with that week's new podcast episodes and an essay by Spencer. You can sign up for that newsletter on our website, clearerthinkingpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.